Well, we all know what this Thursday is. It's Thanksgiving Day. And so that means that many of us will get the opportunity to gather. We will gather with family probably, perhaps friends, right? And what are we going to do? We are going to do what a lot of us do best, right? We are going to eat. And it's going to be good. And it's going to be great, right? Now, Thanksgiving can be kind of funny because sometimes if you're, you know, you see family you haven't seen in a long time. And I know, you know, we all have the one crazy uncle, you know, who's got on all his, he's just wearing, he's wearing politics, literally. Like his hat, his shirt, and everything. And he just talks, you know, like, okay, Uncle Todd, we're guy, we get it. Okay, thank you. We know who you're voting for. We understand, right? Like, and then on the other side of the table, you may have someone who completely disagrees. And Thanksgiving, isn't it just a great opportunity to argue with family you haven't seen in two years? It's just really good. You know, that's, that's the point. So here's the thing, though. Even in the midst of some of those funny family dynamics that, that many of us may have at Thanksgiving, there's still just something special. There's something special about sitting around a table with people that you love. Maybe they annoy you, (laughs) but you love them. You know, there's something special about that. Even just as a church body, you know, when when we gather, when your community group gets together and you gather around a table or you go out to lunch on a Sunday after church with just some friends from church, when you gather around a table whether it's Thanksgiving Day or any other day, there really is something, something significant about that. You know, the reason that eating and sharing a meal together is significant is, has a lot to do, and really everything to do, with God's design for this world and the way that God uses meals in the Bible to show the significance of fellowship, to, the, to show the significance of unity and peace amongst ourselves. Today we're going to see a meal that is going to be had that is, that is just incredible, extraordinary, very unique, something you don't see every day. Before we get to that, it's important for us as we walk through Exodus to not lose sight of the big picture of what God is doing with Israel who are now camped out just below the mountain called Mount Sinai. What is God doing with these people that he's delivered and rescued from Egypt? He is forming a nation. He's forming a nation from Abraham's descendants to represent him to the world and through whom redemption will come to the world one day. You see, as Israel has been rescued and redeemed, now they will become the means through which God rescues and redeems the entire world. However, this plan, this plan is not yet fully realized and accomplished in the book of Exodus. As great and epic as these stories are that were seen throughout Exodus, they kind of leave you hanging. They leave you wanting for more. It's true in the whole Old Testament. But what Exodus and the rest of the Old Testament is doing, it's paving the way for God's great redemption and rescue plan to be completed one day. So what is God doing now in Exodus 24? He is transforming Israel into a holy nation. 
He is teaching them how to love God, how to love people. You know, last week we looked at the famous Ten Commandments, right? And what do the Ten Commandments teach us? Well, they, they really summarize these principles, right? Here's how you love God. Here's how you love people. Those are the two sections of the Ten Commandments that teach us in summary, in principle, how to do that. But after the Ten Commandments, what we're not going to have time to spend walking through in detail today, but between Exodus chapter 20, verse 22, all the way through chapter 23, you know what that is? That's something called the Book of the Covenant. And it gives details, it elaborates on, guess what? How to love God. How to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, in those several chapters between last week and this week, God was giving Israel rules. He was giving them laws to live by. So what? So that they can have a God-glorifying, fully functioning society. You've got to remember the context, right? You've got about 2 million or so people. Seriously, 2 million over 2 million people wandering in a desert, okay? So there's probably going to, some questions are going to come up. Like, hey, he stole my cow. What are we going to do about that? You know what I mean? Like there's going to be some issues. There's going to be some problems when you have 2 million sinful people wandering through a desert together. So God is giving them these rules and these laws because what is he doing? He's forming a nation. A nation is becoming a reality. This promise from Abraham to Abraham was, is becoming a reality before their eyes. So this is kind of like a constitution, if you will. It's like a founding document known as the Book of the Covenant in chapter, between chapters 20 and, and through 23. And that brings us to chapter 24, where now this, these laws, these rules that God has given them, how to love him, how to worship him, how to love each other, what to do when problems arise... This constitution, these bylaws, so if you will, for this nation, the book of the covenant in chapter 24 is going to be ratified. This agreement, this covenant will be established between God and his people. So that brings us to chapter 24 where we see a ceremony. A ceremony is about to take place. God and the people are going to agree that they will live according to the rules God Gave them. Exodus 24, verse 1. Here we go. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70, 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So notice, as we've seen now, the last couple of sermons, as we've walked through Exodus, right? There's still these parameters. God is setting boundaries and parameters around his presence. Not everyone can just walk up into God's presence. He is a holy God, right? So the, there is fire, there is smoke, there is lightning, there is thunder. There's a thick cloud at the top of Mount Sinai where God himself has come to earth. And nobody can approach a holy God. No sinful creature yet, I should say. No sinful creature can approach a holy God. And so we see these parameters of distance, but only one person, only one representative can enter into the immediate 
context and presence of a holy God, and that is the chosen mediator, Moses himself. Verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The people hear God's words, right? Moses speaks to them those words from between chapters 20 and 23, the book of the covenant, the rules, the laws, what to do, how to handle problems and situations, and the people unanimously agree and speak with one voice, yes, we will agree to these terms and conditions. Verse 4, and Moses wrote down all of those words, right? Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So what is Moses doing? He's making this official. This is becoming formalized, right? He's going, there's going to be a ceremony. He's recording the words of God. They're going to be documented. Verse 5, and he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. So a sacrifice is made, and Moses throws half of the blood on the altar, representing God's presence. Verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant, which is now newly formed and documented in written word, He took this book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, right? So he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So again, you have this, these terms and conditions are laid before the people, and the people say, yes, we will do this. We agree to this. We will be obedient. They hear God's word. They respond appropriately. And now watch this, verse 8. This is interesting. Moses, and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. Now that may have caught some of them by surprise. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) Right? Why are you throwing blood on me? Right? And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So this is very interesting that God, or that Moses has thrown half of the blood from the sacrifice on the altar, representing God's God's presence, his side of this covenant, and then half of the blood he throws on the people. So now they are covered by the blood. Why is he doing this? The ESV study Bible uh, says it so well. It says, the blood links the altar and the people, symbolizing the union of God and Israel in the covenant. So this is symbolic. It is saying God and his people are now unified by the blood of the sacrifice. So now Israel has formally entered into this covenant. They are in this now with God. They have heard his authoritative word. They have responded to it. They have been united with God through the blood of the sacrifice. And now, and now the 70 elders of Israel, 70 men who represent the nation, they get to go up on the mountain with 
Moses and Aaron, which is Moses' brother, right? And then Aaron's two sons, they get to go up on the mountain, 74 people total, to celebrate with a meal. This is not just any meal. They are about to dine with God himself. Look at verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he, speaking of God, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Why the significant statement there in verse 11 that God did not lay his hand on these people? Because without a special invitation, without access being granted, no one can approach a holy God. But these people had an invitation. They could approach because God gave them access to his presence. So they beheld God and they shared a meal. Commentators say that they probably did not see God fully. They saw him partially. Perhaps that's why we're told just about where God's feet were, the sapphire stone beneath his feet. Because as of now, only Moses still can come into the full presence as God's chosen mediator between him and his people. So even the elders of Israel must keep a safe distance from God's holiness, even though they still dine with him in his presence. But you can imagine, right? Or or can you imagine how amazing that was? These men, those those men who represented the nation had been themselves enslaved their whole lives. They were born in Egypt. They grew up as slaves. And they had been set free. They had never experienced a meal in the presence of royalty. They had never been able to sit around a table and enjoy the fellowship like this as special guests to someone with authority. They get to come into the presence of God and feast, celebrate, rejoice that they are a free people, that they belong to God, that they have agreed to his terms and his word and they want to live by it. There is nothing more amazing than that. Israel has God's presence. He is with them. They have his words to live by and they are covered in the blood. Now, you know what they can do now? They've got all they need. They can fulfill their purpose, right? They can fulfill their purpose. They can now show the world. We are God's people. We can show you now what God's character looks like in the way that we live according to his laws and his rules that are so good that allow us to operate according to the design that God gave this world. Israel now can show the world what God is like in the way they love him, in the way they center their hearts and their lives and priorities around him, in the way that they love each other as they have been loved. That is how this watching world 
all around the nation of Israel, way out and still in the wilderness by themselves. But when they start moving into Canaan, when they start moving into the promised land, the people around them should see there is one true God and we know it because of the way that his people love him and love each other. That was their mission. But God is not finished. He is going to spend a lot of time with Moses now, showing him how he will continue to dwell among Israel. God is going to come even closer. And we're going to see that next Sunday. But for now, look at this, skipping down to verse 17. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So we're gonna pick up there next week. But what we know is that God has more in store for Israel. But for today, what can we learn from this amazing ceremony this agreement between God and his people and this meal that they share. What is God doing? He's teaching them. He's teaching them, number one, to know, right? God teaches his people to know the authority of his word. That's the first thing we see here. Did you notice, did you notice how Moses and the people, the respect, the respect and reverence they have when God's words are spoken? They are listening to the words, right? Moses speaks them verbally the first time and the people responded. Then he wrote them down. He documented them, which by the way, we still have that book. We're reading it today, right? We're reading what he wrote, right? In Exodus 20 to 23, right? Then he wrote them down in a book and read them. And guess what? The people responded with respect and obedience. They recognize and respect the authority of God's words. You know, we don't always love to respond to authority. Sometimes we may question where authority is coming from, right? So I know, listen, I know none of you do this, but if you're married, uh, when you're in the car together, I know that you don't try to tell your spouse how to drive, okay? I know that you don't do that, but let's just say that if you did, okay, let's pretend, right? That you tell your spouse to slow down. <laughs> you're driving too fast. Why are you driving so fast? Slow down, right? Now, if you're the driver and you look across and see your spouse telling you that, you may say, well, whatever, okay, it's okay. We're in a hurry. Don't worry about it. I got this. I'm a good driver. Remember, I've never gotten any wrecks, but you have, right? There's all kind of things, you know what I mean? <laughs> so you don't really listen, you know what I'm saying? But what do you do when there's blue lights behind you and you get pulled over and the police officer comes to your window and says, uh, you, were, you were speeding, you need to slow down. What do you do then? Well, you listen to him or her, right? You listen to the, the, the officer, okay? But here's the thing. One of those people to you carries great authority. <laughs> now you're like, oh, I, yes, my spouse does, you know? Like, one of those people you're gonna listen to and one of those people you're gonna care what they have to say about that because why? Because their position, right, the position they are in carries inherent authority with it. And so the words that they speak to you mean something because if you don't follow them, there will be consequences. You know, in the world out there today, listen, there are so many voices. Social media, television, Netflix, right? Academia, 
everywhere. We see voices, right? Politics, just so many people are telling us so many things. Everybody wants their voice to be heard. There's so many rules and principles for how we should be living. But at the end of the day, if you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus Christ, then there is only one voice that matters. There's only one voice that carries ultimate authority over you. The laws that we see in the book of the covenant here in Exodus, practically, right, they practically carry out God's purpose for humanity. His purpose is what? Really the same today as it was then. We are called to fill the earth with his image by loving him and loving one another. It's the authority and the purpose behind a rule or a law that brings it validity and value, right? It's what makes laws worth keeping is purpose and meaning behind them. So rules without purpose are arbitrary and not worth following. So I think of, I think of an atheistic worldview. Just think of, in theory, and this is, this is essentially what it boils down to, an atheist would say, okay, well, there is no God. And so therefore, you know, the rules that we have and, and the laws that we have are socially constructed over time and dependent upon the context in which you live and for the betterment of society, okay? But at the end of the day, who gets to decide what's the definition of better? What's better for you may not be better for me. At the end of the day, if there is no ultimate truth, if there is no ultimate authority, then hear me out. According to an atheistic worldview, what do the rules really matter? If we're all going to die and return to the dust of the earth and there is no afterlife, there is no eternity, there is no heaven, there is no hell, then really, does it matter at all how we live? It doesn't. There is no meaning or purpose behind the rules of this world if there is no God. Nothing really matters. We should do away with rules and just live whatever brings you joy, no matter if it harms someone else. That would be essentially the truth of an atheistic worldview. That's not what we believe. If God does exist, and he does, if he has something to say, we better listen. If our God has something to say, then guess what? Now everything matters. Everything matters. Because there is eternal accountability. There are ultimate truths that govern society and this world that are according to the design that our creator put instinctively in us. What we're seeing in Exodus is that there is a God and that he wants to be known. He wants to communicate with his people. So he communicates with his creation. He is claiming in Exodus to be the one unique and exclusive God, the only God. He is proving that over and over with these miraculous wonders and signs and his presence itself coming down. So therefore, his words spoken matter greatly because he is the ultimate authority and we do answer to him when we die. In Matthew 28, we call this the Great Commission. What did Jesus say? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. 
See, the rule, the command for us to make disciples here at Kernan and in Jacksonville and beyond, that carries validity and value and meaning and purpose because it is coming from the one who is ultimate truth. The words of God matter and they are authoritative over your life, whether you recognize it or acknowledge it or agree to it or not. And that's the best thing for you. It's the best thing for me. That's why one of our core values here at Kernan, our, our second core value here at Kernan Church is this. We want to know what the Bible says and means because we hold it high. We know that God has spoken. We want to listen. We want to dive deep into the word of God at this church and know what God is telling us so that we can live in joyful obedience for him. And 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I love that phrase, training in righteousness. Training us to live for the Lord, to love each other, right? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In a world where everyone has something to say, and wants their voice to be heard, whose voice are you listening to? Really? Whose voice are you letting your ears hear more frequently? The news more than the Bible? The friend with not great advice more than the Bible? The world system more than the Bible? You don't need to look for a sign in the sky. Listen, God has already spoken. He has spoken to you and he has spoken to us in his written word, just as he gave it to Moses. We have it today. Like Israel that day, are you listening to the word of God and are you agreeing to how he is asking you to live for him and for others? So number one, God teaches his people. He teaches us to know the authority of his word. But the second thing we see here that applies to us today is this. God teaches his people to know the effectiveness of his blood. The effectiveness of his blood. In Exodus 24, verse 7, look at that again. The people, they, they heard the reading, right, of the book of the covenant. And how did they respond? They said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. We will be obedient. The people aspire to be obedient. And that's great. Because if you truly respect and submit to the authority of God's word of your life, if you recognize that and say, yes, Lord, I'm not a biblical scholar and I'm not a theologian, Lord, but I want to follow your word and I'm gonna do my best to study it, to read it, to understand it, to talk about it in community group with others. I'm gonna do my best to do these things, right? If that is true, then the that leads to obedience because you're digesting the word of God, you submit it, you're submitting to its authority and that's gonna lead you to obedience as you trust that God's word is better than the words of this world. But if the 10 commandments along with the laws in the book of the covenant, if they show us anything, it's that, you know what? We can't be completely obedient, can we? We can't do it. We can't be completely obedient. We cannot keep all the rules of God. How do you know that's true? Just look at your track record. 
I know that's true because I've sinned so much in my life. We know it's true because we break these rules and we know it in our hearts, even if we try to cover it up or lie to ourselves or lie to others. We break God's commands and that disobedience creates a barrier between us and God. It's a barrier that cannot be broken on our own. It creates this distance, this eternal distance between us and a perfect, sinless God. So can this barrier between us and God, because of our sinfulness, because of our own choosing, because of our own disobedience, can it be broken? Can the barrier come down? And if so, how? You know, a lot of these Old Testament stories, we see a lot of sacrifice. We see a lot of blood. There's a reason for that. The reason you see so much animal sacrifice and blood in the Old Testament and so many rules about how to perform these sacrifices. You know, you, you may not choose to, to read those passages for your quiet time with your coffee in the mornings, okay? You may say, I've got a weak stomach. I'm not going to read about this right now, right? Maybe that's what you're thinking. But there's so much meaning and purpose in these things. Again, these aren't random. They're not arbitrary. These blood sacrifices in the Old Testament, do you know what they're doing? They're pointing the people of God to their need for atonement. That word means for their debt of sin to be paid and forgiven. What God is teaching his people is to know the effectiveness of his blood, that sins must be paid for. The penalty of our sin is eternal death and eternal separation from God. So the only way to be rescued from that penalty. The only way for us to be reconciled to a holy God is if a death occurs. Blood must be spilt because punishment must be enforced. But that death does not have to be yours. The sacrifice can die as your substitute in your place. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, the author of Hebrews says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Do you understand why that is? It's because a holy God cannot allow sinful creatures into his presence all sin, all sin, everywhere, from every point in human history, must and will be fully punished. All of it. Or else God is not just. He is not completely holy if he does not punish all sin. So these sacrifices are teaching the people that it doesn't have to be them that receives the wrath and the punishment of God. It doesn't have to be them. It can be the animal in their place. It could be the blood that covers them. And Hebrews 10 verse 4 tells us, for it is impossible, listen to this, this is interesting, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Well, now that leaves us with an interesting question. If it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, then what do we do? Where's the atonement coming from? The answer is in Hebrews 9, 14 and 15. 
how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Did you hear that? Only Moses, the mediator, could enter into the presence of God. Yet another greater Moses came. His name was Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and man, because he is fully God and fully man. So only he could bridge the gap. Only he could lay down his life for your sins in your place so that you don't have to. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. We're not under the covenant of Exodus 24. We stand here today and say, we are not under the covenant of Exodus 24. No, we are under the covenant of Jesus Christ. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred, but it wasn't yours. A death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The blood of Jesus is effective. It accomplishes what it set out to do and it changes everything in your life. It changes everything about you. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once, who once were far off, Right? Remember the people? They could not come close to God. God said they had to worship what? From afar. But now us, who were once far off in our sin, have been brought near. And how? How did that happen? Because the blood of Jesus has been thrown on you. It has covered your sin. It has washed you white as snow. You can enter into the presence of a holy God, not because of what you try to do every day, not because you try to be a morally good person and adhere to the rules of the world, not because people consider you an upstanding citizen, because you have been covered by the blood. It's not your works. It's by grace through faith that you have been saved. You were once far off and now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Romans 6 it just keeps getting better. Paul says, verses four through six, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It just keeps getting better. Not only did Jesus die in your place, he rose from the grave in your place. You are united with him through faith in him. You one day will rise from your grave. You one day will live forever with no pain and no suffering, no harm, no sorrow. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You are truly covered by the blood of Jesus and you can effectively walk in newness of life. You can say like the Israelites at the, at, said at first, but they failed to do all that the Lord has said, all that the Lord has spoken, I will do and I will be obedient because I have the power of the blood. The spirit of God is not on a mountain. He lives in me. 
You can say that. So now you read, and what do you do? You read and you study the Bible with all of its authority, and you can begin to center your actual daily routines around it. You can do that, Christian. You can take the time to think about your life and say, why am I doing these things that I'm doing? Why am I spending my money on these things that I'm spending? Why am I going to these places? Why am I talking to this in this tone, in this way? The gospel, the blood of Jesus makes us and realizes, it brings this realization to us that we can live for the Lord. And all of these things in our lives can be centered around his holy will. It's the spirit of God that drives us to obedience through his word. His blood is very infinitely effective. The last thing we see, God teaches his people to know the joy of his table. The joy of his table. As I mentioned earlier, what an amazing dinner that was. A Thanksgiving meal, if you will. Those 74 people experienced that day on Mount Sinai, eating with God on the mountain. But here's an even more amazing thought. On the night before Jesus would spill his blood, to effectively cure our sickness of sin forever, what did he do? He shared a meal with his disciples. Today we call that the Lord's Supper, and we continue to share that meal together, often as the people of God. We don't live under the old Mosaic covenant of Exodus 24, but we live under this new covenant of Jesus Christ. When we participate as a church in the Lord's Supper, you know what that is? That's a real opportunity to rejoice around the table of God together. Those moments are truly sacred. It reminds us of what has been done for us. You know what else? It reminds us of what is to come. One day, God will invite his people to dine in his presence again. But that time, there will be no distance and there will be no end. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9, the apostle John saw a vision of heaven and here's what he saw. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the, li for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. You know what's amazing? Far greater than any Thanksgiving meal you may have this week. You get a seat at God's table for all eternity. 
If you have turned from trying to be your own Savior, if you have turned from trying to atone, pay the price by just being a good person and proving to God and other people that you have what it takes, if you turn away from that prideful, selfish pursuit of your own salvation and turn to the one who spilt his blood for you in your place that you could never do. In other words, if you know Jesus Christ as your true Savior and you live for him as your Lord, you are invited to the greatest meal, the greatest feast we'll ever see. You know how the story ends, don't you? You know, we know how this story ends. There's so many things in our lives that, doesn't, that don't make sense, that we can't understand. There's so many hardships that we have to go through on this earth. There's so many things that just don't go the way that we plan them to go. And we get frustrated. We get fearful. We have anxiety. We don't know where to turn. But how good is our God to give us the ending of the story? We know. We know how the story ends. And so these momentary afflictions that we go through, they do hurt. The pain is real. But the eternal glory that awaits us, nothing can compare. Nothing compares to the fact that you have a seat at the table of God forever. Live in that story now. The way you respond to people, the way you respond to tragedy, the way you respond to disappointments, live in the story now. Live as one who has a seat at the table and is not brought down by the weight of the world, but looks up to heaven and says, yes, yes, Lord. I will dine with you one day. And I'm going to live that way now. If we know the greatest feast is in our future, why would we ever want to fill up on earthly things now? If you're here today and maybe you aren't sure about your salvation, maybe you just you don't know if you have a relationship with God, I encourage you to know today you can. You can turn to Jesus to be your savior. There's no magic formula to say or do. It's an issue of trust in your heart. It's an issue of turning away from what you thought would save you and turning to Jesus himself and just crying out to him and saying, Lord, I want you. I just want you. Maybe you're here today and you're a Christian and like I said, you've just been going through some tough stuff. We all do. And all joking aside, maybe you're not looking forward to this week. It could bring back painful memories. It could be a bad experience awaiting you. And I get that. But know this, whatever you're facing, there's a seat at the table of God waiting for you. Rejoice in that. If you don't know how to rejoice in that, ask the Lord to help you. And he will get into his word this week, soak in it, pray and say, Lord, I want to have joy knowing that, knowing how the story ends, I want to have joy in the 
temporary moments of this life. But I don't know how. It eludes me, Lord, but give it. Jesus, give me the joy in your name, knowing that I have a seat at your table. You can pray and ask God for that today.